Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we know that as a nation, we've put a lot of effort into consolidating our international student market over the past few decades. But while universities and the economy more broadly has benefited from huge numbers of people coming here to live temporarily and study, less attention has been paid to people's actual living and working conditions when in Australia. A new report paints a concerning picture of systemic wage theft experienced by international students. And it notes that while the problem has been known for some time, exploitation is still quite widespread. Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at University Technology Sydney, Laurie Berg, is one of the co-authors of the report titled International Students and Wage Theft in Australia. And Laurie joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being there. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And so how did you go about exploring the employment experience of international students? Well, we surveyed 5,000 international students last year and, um, and asked them about their employment experiences and their wages and their lowest paid job and found that three quarters were earning less than the casual minimum wage. That's extraordinary. And, and I mean, you've um, done a, a study of this type before as well, or at least the organisation, um, the Migrant Worker Justice Initiative, has done this uh, a similar survey in 2016. Has much changed at all since then? No, that's right. I mean, I was involved in a, in a similar survey in 2016 and the proportions were very similar. So, I mean, now we found in this report that three quarters earned less than the casual minimum wage, but for a substantial number of students, the wage theft was, was even more egregious. So one in three international students in university bachelor degrees uh, were paid less than half the casual minimum wage. And, and in 2016, the proportions were similar. So, I mean, we've concluded that, you know, despite government commitments to addressing the issue, wage theft just remains business as usual for international students and, in fact, many other temporary migrants as well. Yeah, and, I mean, did you find, based on your survey, that this was concentrated at all in any particular industries? Uh, look, we didn't ask about industry this time. We know that most international students are worth working in hospitality and retail um, from our previous survey. So, I mean, that's basically the jobs in which these students are these students are working and these wages are being reported. But, I mean, we were surprised that wage theft wasn't linked to other things that you might think, like students' level of education, for mm. instance. I mean, it was just as common among master's students as English language students. Um, and as I said, I mean, university students actually, in bachelor degrees, actually reported some of the worst wage rates. Um, and it was even widespread among among international students who, who said that their, their English language level was good, although it was worse for for students um, with poor English. So, I mean, we conclude this isn't about the particular attributes of international students. This is about enforcement of labour law for vulnerable foreigners um, and, and some gaps in, in the enforcement um, system. Yeah, and, and the, the figures are really startling. I mean, you've alluded to them um, just earlier, but a half or 49% um, of those surveyed were paid below the basic statutory, statutory minimum wage and over three quarters were paid below the minimum casual hourly wage. I mean, that's quite extraordinary, an extraordinary level of, um, of, of wage theft that's been going on for some time. 
It is. I mean, it shows that right up until, and I should say this was up until the COVID lockdown, so we, this survey was undertaken last year. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the overwhelming majority of international students were still being pay, underpaid three, three years on. Um, so, you know, the government's been tinkering around the edges. It's clearly not enough in addressing wage theft for international students. And also, as we know, I mean, wage theft is in among the broader community as well. Yeah, and, and what do we know about, uh, I guess, um, the nature of the particular experiences of international students? Because, I mean, is there an awareness of, for example, industrial relations law and, and what type of wage they might be entitled to, whether receiving cash payments is, is kind of fine, um, and, you know, what can be done if you feel like you may not be getting paid the amount that you should be? Was there much kind of understanding around that and, and um, what types of... Uh, I guess, issues or challenges have people reported facing um, when, you know, even when they are aware that they're not being paid what they should be? Yeah, well, no, I mean, you're right. There's a common perception that international students accept underpayment because they don't know the correct minimum wage in Australia. But we actually found that the overwhelming majority did know mm. the basic minimum wage, at least. They might have less familiarity with, with casual wage rates. But, you know, I mean, they accept these jobs because that's what's available to them. And they stay silent even when they know they're being underpaid. I mean, mainly because they're, jepo- they're, they're terrified of jeopardising their, their visa yeah. and, the, you know, the possibility. Of, of future visas and you know and, and that, I think that's actually for two reasons some may be working more than their visa permits um, they're allowed to work 40 hours a fortnight but some might be working more because of their extremely low wages and they're afraid that that visa breach is going to get detected if they report wage theft but we also found and you, you alluded to cash cash payments and we also found that the overwhelming majority actually mistakenly believed that they were at fault Mm. and that they'd broken the law either by accepting the underpayment, so agreeing to, you know, $15 an hour or $12 an hour when they knew that was less than they were entitled to, or by accepting cash payments. Um, They believed that it was illegal to accept cash payments, but in fact it's not at all. Um, And so, so they stay silent. And that really is concerning. I mean, there is some government messaging that suggests that it's international students' responsibility to make sure that they're being properly paid and, you know, that they may be at fault if they're being underpaid. So, you know, in reality, international students obviously have very little bargaining power with an unscrupulous employer. And in fact, our survey also showed that many of those who complained to their employer lost their jobs. So mm. I think that, you know, the messaging that suggests that students, you know, have a responsibility to, to be paid correctly and if they have a problem, they should talk to their employer. We really need to give that further consideration. Yeah, we're speaking with uh, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, Laurie Berg. Laurie's also um, co-director of the Migrant Worker Justice Initiative and a co-author of a report um, into wage theft experienced by international students in Australia. And, I mean, you know, the pandemic has, has changed things for so many of us. And I know there have been concerns around the plight of international students and temporary migrant workers as well who haven't been able to access the kind of job keeper and job seeker subsidies from the federal government and some have pointed to I guess a, a level of neglect given the role the huge role that international students play in Australia's economy um, you know I think it's our fourth largest export industry is, is higher education do you see uh, I mean any kind of parallels there between um, the way in which we are not so readily willing to um, assist international students when the going gets tough? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that COVID has really created a humanitarian crisis among international students. I mean, many, as you as you mentioned, were casual workers and lost their job um, during the lockdown, um, especially in, in hospitality and retail. And the government turned its back on them and denied them access to JobKeeper and JobSeeker, um, you know, leaving many unable to pay rent or, you know, and they were lining up in food bank queues. Um, and now I think as the economy reopens, there really is the potential for a perfect storm of even greater exploitation as businesses look for ways to cut corners. You know, jobs are obviously more scarce and international students may be more desperate for income and, and more likely to accept wage theft in silence. Um, but, but the truth is no one knows exactly what the impact of COVID on temporary migrants in, in Australia is. So we've actually um, just launched a new nationwide survey of temporary migrants, so international students, but also backpackers, refugees and everyone else on a temporary visa to uncover the challenges that they've faced in their physical and, um, and financial insecurity in this time. Yeah, and so what will that entail? Uh, so we asked them about um, about their experiences at work, whether they lost their job, whether they found new, a new job and what those conditions were like, whether the conditions were worse, whether they um, went for a period without being paid, mm. whether they were giving, given pr- protective equipment, if relevant, in that job. Um, and we also asked them about precarious housing, um, financial insecurity, whether they went, whether they feared homelessness, went without food for a time, and how they felt about their sort of health and, and well-being and discrimination in Australia to really paint um, an accurate picture of um, of the experience of people on temporary visas during this time without federal government support. And we also asked them whether they got support from others, whether it was their university, because many universities have stepped forward, um, state governments or, or, or community members. We've already received well over 2,000 responses and the survey's open for another two weeks. And I might just mention it's on our website, nwji.org, <laughs> if anyone is on a temporary visa and um, and would like to take part um, because we're really you know it's, it's an opportunity for us to to gather the voices of in, of international students backpackers and other temporary migrants to make sure that um, you know the government is really responding to their needs yeah that sounds like really important work and um, I mean just to return briefly to your survey did you find at all that there were people from particular nationalities or ethnic backgrounds that were disproportionately impacted by um, wage theft and exploitation Look, we did find that wage theft was um, it was prevalent among all of the largest nationalities um, groupings. So it wasn't just um, reported by by anyone, but it was. But some of the worst wage rates were reported by Chinese students, where well over half of Chinese students were paid twelve dollars an hour or less than their lowest paid job, which is extremely low. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, are there any um, sort of means, or, or could you imagine that there would be a sort of broad based inquiry that would result in wages being repaid because it's happening at such you know a widespread level um you know if we if we can extrapolate on um your survey responses can you foresee that as as an eventuality eventuality of a process such as this Look, well, the the government was talking about, um, uh, you know, particular reforms to address wage theft in the lead-up to COVID, but it seems to have fallen off the radar um, since since the COVID lockdown, and the conversation appears to have turned more to sort of productivity and job creation, which, of course, are also very important. But we need to continue to have a conversation about reforms that are needed to labour enforcement and wage recovery. Um, We need better enforcement at the Fair Work Ombudsman. The, The system currently isn't working 
working, especially for foreign, you know, temporary migrant workers um, who seek to recover their wages. Um, the Fair Work Ombudsman isn't, doesn't have a large-scale wage recovery mechanism. Um, it's not a worker advocate, and it doesn't investigate a great number of, of, of wage claims. And, you know, the other option is for international students or backpackers or others to take a claim to court. Mm. But that's, you know, extremely sort of procedurally complicated and, um, and, and can be costly and, you know, requires a level of English that, you know, is really sort of beyond the capacity of, of most temporary workers and indeed most, most workers in Australia, I think, on their own. And there's not enough uh, legal assistance available. So we need a new wage recovery forum, a new tribunal that could swiftly and effectively um, assess these claims in a way that's accessible to all workers, all employees in Australia. Yeah, well, it's it's really important your work uh, work you're doing, and um, best of luck with the current study as well. Look forward to hearing what comes from that, and um, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today on Triple R. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. Absolute pleasure. That is uh, Associate Professor of um, in the Faculty of Law at University Technology, Sydney, Laurie Berg, talking all about their new report, um, International Students and Wage Theft in Australia. And um, as you heard, you can head to their website. Um, if indeed you are a temporary migrant and would like to provide some responses to their current survey as well, um, it's all available on the Migrant Worker Justice Initiative website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Over the past few months, we've seen changes to our society and our economy that many of us would not have thought possible. After years of economic growth, Australia is suddenly in a deep recession and we've seen public spending increase to quite incredible levels through a doubling of the JobSeeker payment, the initiation of JobKeeper and other measures designed to buffer us against the worst consequences of the pandemic. And now as we start to eye the expiry date of such schemes, there's a lot of questions around just what sorts of government supports and stimulus measures should be implemented to help guide us through the coming months and years and um, also to support the most vulnerable. The Grattan Institute has spent their time in lockdown working on a recovery book which presents a whole heap of ideas for charting Australia's path through these times and to talk all about the economic side of things I'm very pleased to be joined by Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Fellow at the Grattan Institute Kate Griffiths. Great to have you on the show Kate. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. And so it feels like we were given a reality check here in Victoria, at least over the past couple of weeks, about just how long we're going to have to live with COVID-19. And obviously that's being experienced particularly um, acutely in certain postcodes and, um, you know, people in certain living arrangements. Is it correct to speak of us being in recovery mode at the moment? It's a really fair question. We're certainly now living kind of with COVID rather than talking about a sort of post-COVID or, um, you know, beyond the crisis world. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the dominant message of, of what we've seen in Victoria and, and actually of the recovery book too is that we are not out of the woods yet and that's on the health front, that's on the economic front as well. And it's really about being extremely vigilant, like all of us as citizens, being conscious of our own um, sort of the things that we can do in terms of social distancing and taking precautions, but also governments, what they need to be focused on. And that's, you know, the vigilance around contact tracing, around testing, making sure that this thing doesn't get out again. 
I mean, we, we maybe are at the risk of a second wave, but, you know, even if we weren't, we would still have a whole range of, of, of follow-on risks from this initial shutdown period. And so we were never out of the woods even before Victoria's rising cases. Yeah, and so, I mean, the the report that you've put together is incredibly detailed and, um, you know, covers um, the whole gamut, really, of um, of Australian society and, and what sorts of measures should be, should be implemented in terms of schooling and, and economics and, and housing and all that sort of stuff as well. I mean, given that things are sort of changing so quickly, how did you approach putting the recovery book together? Yeah, so we thought about what are the priorities for governments in the next six months? What are the things that have to be done now and that's in terms of of things that need to be done in the health system to make sure that we are ready to respond if there is a second wave that's things that need to be done in terms of border restrictions to make sure we are quarantining properly that's things that need to be done in terms of the economic recovery and the way in which we reopen businesses the way in which we reopen workplaces and schools we have to do that really carefully as we've seen there are huge risks um of the comeback of the virus, but also um, just in terms of, of the impact on, on um, households and businesses, like providing people with a bit of, um, you know, direction in terms of, of what will local lockdowns look like when they arise, because there will be local lockdowns. What will, um, you know, reopening of schools mean and what happens when there's a case in a school and the school needs to shut down again? How are we going to recover those learning losses? And what do we need to do in terms of, you know, right now we've got these government supports in place that you mentioned, uh, job seeker, job keeper, and they are so important and are doing a huge job right now in insulating households from the worst of the crisis. But what will happen come October? We need to be giving um, clear direction on these sorts of questions so that people, household businesses have confidence that we can recover from this. Yeah, and so what is your sense of how the economic fallout in this country has so far been managed? So governments have, have cushioned the impact with a huge amount of spending, and that's been really important. Like, that's been world-leading in many ways. So we've seen $160 billion in government commitments to spend, so mostly at the federal level, but also across all states and territories. And that is, you know, money going out the door to support households and businesses to kind of hibernate through that initial wave. What we haven't seen yet is any commitments as to what happens beyond the initial mm. wave. And as you, as you were saying, you know, we are in a with COVID world and, uh, you know, the initial kind of idea that we would just hibernate and then reopen is already sort of we're seeing the challenges with that. And we do need to try and reopen as much as we can. Um, but, of course, um, you know, this is something we're now living with and will have long-term consequences. So I think what we really need to see is, is a plan for how we transition off some of these kind of unsustainable support measures but onto, um, you know, a new kind of um, more... Um, uh, sort of fiscal stimulus, more spending um, in order to kind of generate um, and boost the economic recovery. So I, I think what we really need to see from government is, is a transition plan and, and that is critical. <laughs> you know, right now we see a whole lot of support measures disappearing in October. Um, in fact, you know, all of that spending pretty much di- um, disappears come October. So there's going to be a, this kind of fiscal cliff of government supports just pulled at that point and we really need to see a slower transition off those payments then we want to see a a range of different kinds of projects that show that government is serious about an economic recovery and is willing to lead it 
Yeah, and I mean, I want to get to some of your specific recommendations in in just a moment. But um, the report uh, warns against Australia moving into a so-called austerity phase, and um, it points to how this has hampered economies, you know, coming out of the Great Depression, and um, and makes the argument for more stimulus measures to help kind of lead us through and, and out of um, the economic shock of the pandemic. I mean, we've had um, debates around debt and deficit, and, and the government trumpeting its its return to surplus as a real kind of you know election strategy really um, how do you see that sort of debate going forward and and will there be a willingness to continue to kind of stimulate the economy with those types of um, payments and measures to help to prevent us um, you know remaining in, in in recession for the foreseeable future so there, there are some choices to be made some really hard choices um, and there are definitely some um, some of the sorts of supports that are in place now that are doing a, a really important job like let's say JobKeeper, um, that's the big spend item and it is, um, and it's a really important one but it is also not a sustainable one. Yeah. We can't be subsidising wages forever and that, that, um, that system of support is a short-term temporary measure. Um, so there are some hard choices to be made. It is a difficult balancing act. It's not about keeping something like JobKeeper ongoing. It's about how do you um, reduce it so as it's not um, so that everybody doesn't sort of come off all at once in September. Some people on it really need it and some people on it may not need it by the time September comes around. So if we can transition off a payment like that a little bit slower, some people coming off even potentially earlier than September, some in September and maybe others not till Christmas. Um, it means that everyone doesn't take a hit at the same time. And then um, in terms of actually boosting the economy so as those jobs are real on the other side, we're not just kind of keeping shell businesses in place, but actually, um, you know, giving businesses the confidence to invest and to hire workers. We need some um, fiscal stimulus in the kind of, in the next six months. Um, and the sooner it's announced, the better. That could take a whole range of different forms. That yeah. could be in the form of um, extra loading for schools to help disadvantaged students catch up through tutoring programs. It could be in the form of small-scale infrastructure projects. And small-scale is important because they're the ones that are shovel-ready. They're the ones like you know road maintenance or support for cycling that might be needed like right here, right now, when people are more wary about public transport. Um, so getting some of those sorts of things up and running, that does actually generate jobs and that that's infrastructure that could be needed right away. Then there's the other sorts of projects like social housing that were needed anyway. And so it's a really good use of fiscal stimulus because um, some spending, you know, goes out the door. And if it could be for things that are needed anyway for long-term um, benefit, then that's all the better. And there's a number of different kinds of, of ways we could be spending in this kind of next year or two that could have really big long-term benefits. Yeah, it's a really interesting time because there have been some criticisms about, um, you know, for example, the home builder scheme, that there's not necessarily enough of um, a sort of public good coming out of that, even though it might do a reasonable job of sort of stimulating the construction sector, for example. But there's some, you know, hope there might be more announcements um, in that regard too. So it's kind of really helpful to be, you know, taking a really broad view of this, which your, um, your uh, recovery book provides. I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Kate Griffiths um, from the Grattan Institute, all about um, a really detailed document that they've put out charting Australia's um, recovery 
from the pandemic and also sort of things that we can do in the short term to help buffer us against the worst consequences as well. And I mean, you spoke a little bit about JobKeeper just there as well. Your report calls for um, not just kind of weaning people off it and, and, um, and extending it for some groups as well, but also uh, increasing exactly who is eligible um, in terms of temporary migrants, university workers and, um, and some others as well. I mean, is that something that you could see happening um, given the amount of money that's already been dedicated to the JobKeeper scheme? I guess these are the questions for, for governments right now. Where do they want to put the funds? And, and we recommend that they do extend eligibility because there's some really um, sort of odd um, exceptions here. For temporary migrants, for example, this one's really critical uh, because they're not eligible for the job seeker payment either. So they're not eligible for, uh, like temporary migrants are normally not eligible um, for, say, different kinds of welfare support. And that might be in normal times a reasonable principle, but in, in these times when they may not be able to travel home and they have no other support available to them, it's really critical. And, and it would make sense to make them eligible for JobKeeper, but a government could potentially choose to make them eligible temporarily for something like JobSeeker as well, and that would remedy the worst of, of the problem there. Um, in terms of exceptions like universities, I mean, I think that's a really interesting one because the university sector is obviously hit hard by the loss of international students. Mm. We've now seen a proposal uh, from government with a whole range of different kinds of, of policy changes. It's an enormous set of reforms for the sector, but it doesn't get to the kind of crux of the issue that's going on for universities right now, which is how do we get through the next kind of six to 12 months? And, and on the six-month timescale, that's exactly what JobKeeper is there for. Um, on the sort of 12-month timescale, governments can do something there without even spending. They could um, promote Australia as a destination for international students and support the necessary quarantining that would have to happen. Then actually, that could be a really positive recovery story there because universities in Australia may be more popular destination than, say, the UK or the US, which are the usual competitors for that industry. So there are some real economic opportunities here without spending money too. It's about being um, sending clear messages, I suppose, um, within you know within Australia to, to our households and businesses to kind of get people's confidence back, but also beyond because um, there are some opportunities for Australia because we've been, done so well so far on the virus front um, to you know be the the destination of choice. Yeah. For, say international students. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and I mean the the issue of what exactly happens to the job seeker payment is a really big one, given that um, you know quite a few organisations have been lobbying for years for the unemployment benefit to be increased. Um, it, it hadn't been, and then suddenly um, you know the pandemic hits and there's a doubling to the fortnightly payment um, sort of very quickly. You call for um, the the Grattan Institute's calling for a raise um, to the job seeker payment um, from pre-COVID levels of $100 a week. How did you come at that figure? So we say at least $100, yep. and that's um, really about getting getting the payment up to something like, um, you know, at the level that you can live on. Uh, we, it was quite clear before the crisis that this was... Um, at a level well below what anyone would would recommend from first principles approach, even with a one hundred dollar rise um, per week in the job seeker payment, that's still below the poverty line. We're still talking about levels, um, you know, that are that are that are very low. There's always a bit of a debate about incentives to work and and, and all of that, but I think right now, particularly when we're seeing unemployment 
currently at seven percent would be you know over eleven percent if um, if you were factoring in all the people who say have a job but are working no hours. Um, you know we've got high unemployment levels. We need to have a strong social security net right here, right now. And it's a really good way to to spend, say, you know, stimulus money. It's not traditional stimulus, but if you spend money on those people, they will spend the money right away. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in, in your report that we're not going to get through everything. We're really just scratching the surface. But um, another issue it touches on is the superannuation early release scheme. And um, the report found that as many as 40% of people um, dipping into their super didn't necessarily suffer an actual drop in income. Should that be cause for concern that people are using this mechanism when they might not necessarily kind of be suffering the type of hardship that others are who have, who have really lost a significant portion of their income? I think it's really just a, a bit of a, a failure in the initial design of it. And, of course, it was it was rushed, um, as most of these sorts of support measures are. You know, speed is, is more important in many ways than getting the design perfect. But there's an opportunity there with that particular one, early access to super. There was two tranches. Um, you could take out um, $10,000 this financial year and $10,000 next financial year, just making sure that those people who are taking it out are taking it out because they need to, um, is a really critical check that just needs to be in place before the second tranche. Yeah, and another um, another issue raised is, or a proposal is, to wind back some of the generous tax breaks for older Australians um, in the words of the report that serve little policy purpose um, and this would help to ensure the economic cost of coronavirus doesn't fall uh, disproportionately on the shoulders of the young. Is that things, I mean, you know, things like franking credits and and negative gearing reform come to mind, which of course didn't really go well for the um, the ALP when it went to the election with those sorts of policies. Are those the types of things that you have in mind or, or what else might that include? Yeah, so that one was a really a nod to the sorts of long-term reforms you could be doing, so definitely not a priority for governments in the next six months, mm. but something um, in, in order to kind of share the burden ongoing because, of course, a large amount of spending means a large amount of debt, and whilst that debt is very manageable over the next little while because debt cost is so low right now, um, you know, in the long term, in order to ensure that younger Australians particularly are not paying the full, full costs here, um, you could take back some of the tax breaks for older Australians. A lot of them are around superannuation um, and they didn't serve a policy purpose anyway. So that's kind of one of these things where um, it's not something governments really need to be thinking about right here, right now, but it gives them a sense of the direction. We, we will help them think through how to manage their budgets in the long term. We don't want this to be a pure spending agenda, um, but right here, right now, what's needed in order to ensure we're not in a long, deep recession is fiscal stimulus. Yeah, and, and I don't want to um, uh, cause you to do too, too much crystal ball gazing necessarily, but as we approach this so-called fiscal cliff in sort of September, October, when some of those um, schemes such as JobKeeper and the um, increased uh, job seeker payment reach their expiry date, what sort of could happen if we don't have really formidable measures in place to transition people off some of those payments? Um, what, what will be the fallout from that? So probably the most likely thing is is high unemployment. And I guess what we saw in March, we could see again in October. So that was where lots of people lost work within just a few weeks. Business confidence plummeted, consumer confidence plummeted. And of course, a lot of that um, was, well, that was directly linked to the sort of government restrictions, government shutdown. Um, next time around, it, it could be as these sorts of programs um, wrap up, uh, some of those businesses are still not yet viable, not on their feet again, and have to lay off workers. So I think unemployment is, is the really big immediate risk around that time. And um, 
and doing what we can to ensure that that as many people can get work as as possible is is a huge role for the RBA for um, for governments um, state and federal and uh, also for, for um, you know all of us in thinking through you know what is it that we can do to ensure that there isn't a second wave of this virus because that that's exactly the sort of thing that'll push us into um, into a deeper recession. Yeah, well, there's so much food for thought in the report and um, hopefully it can play a role in leading some positive change and, um, and reducing the impact of the pandemic on uh, Australian society into the foreseeable future. Thanks so much for, um, for joining us on AAA to talk all about it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Kate Griffiths, their Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Fellow at the Grattan Institute. We were chatting all about their recovery book, a really detailed um, kind of policy document, but very readable policy document um, around uh, the types of measures that could be implemented in Australia to help um, help alleviate the uh, worst consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. And we were just chatting about um, a whole bunch of economic measures. There's a lot more in the report, which you can check out on the Grattan Institute website if you are interested. Triple R. And our community radio, our community broadcasting, I should say, cousins over at Channel 31 were preparing to cease uh, broadcasting on the free-to-wear digital spectrum last Tuesday. That was until a last-minute reprieve from the federal government announced publicly on Monday night that will allow them to continue doing their thing for another year. This is one of quite a few ad hoc extensions to Channel 31's broadcasting licence over the past few years since the federal government flagged um, that all community television in Australia would need to shift to an online-only model some years ago. To talk about what this all means for Channel 31 going forward, I'm joined by their general manager, Shane Dunlop. Uh, Great to have you on the show, Shane. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Pleasure. And I mean, I should say congratulations for that last minute reprieve, but it must make it really hard to run things when, you know, one day you think you're about to to finish up and then the next minute you're, you're continuing on for at least another year. Look, I mean, we've been doing this for six years. Uh, in the past, we have had to, I guess, turn around after a, a, a last-minute reprieve. Uh, I think the closest we've got in the past was three days before a switch-off deadline. Uh, this time, we, we found out, well, we found out uh, officially the day of, but uh, we, of course, were watching Q&A on the Monday night um, before our switch-off last week, and we saw the minister make the announcement Um and so that's that's really when we knew for sure that we were going to be getting more time. Earlier that day, our staff at 31 uh, came into the office for the first time since lockdown began, and, and were clearing out their desks. So wow. that's how that's how close we were. Um, and, and you know, it, it's it's strange even talking to you today. You know, knowing that we're still broadcasting and we've got another 12 months to go. Yeah, totally bizarre. And I mean, can you just give us a, a brief kind of potted history of of the types of battles you've had to fight over the past few years um, in terms yeah. of maintaining broadcasting on the the free to wear spectrum? Yeah, well, it goes back to 2014 uh, when Malcolm Turnbull was the communications minister, and he wanted to, I guess, uh, he flagged that he wanted to use the spectrum that we use. Um, to test new compression technologies for the mainstream networks. 
Uh, and then there were a series of short-term six-month extensions, which you know I challenge any business under the you know best circumstances to be able to to navigate successfully when you only know you've got six months at a time for about four years. Mm. During that time, we lost two stations uh, in Sydney and Brisbane, so they were able to use those vacant markets to test that technology that the mainstream networks decided they didn't want to adopt anyway. Uh, and so the original reason basically was null and void as far back as 2018. It didn't stop the, I guess, the, the new ministers that took over from Turnbull subsequently on just deciding to keep the keep the uh, the original decision um, going. And, and that's where we sort of find ourselves being asked to, to, to vacate, essentially, but without there being an actual reason other than a theoretical future one. Right. So, so is that, I mean, is there a particular amount of funding attached to that or is there any rationale beyond um, sort of a prior decision that doesn't really have much, um, uh, you know, relevance to today's situation? Yeah, so um, we, we, we're, uh, like you know, most community media organisations, we don't get direct yeah. uh, government assistance. We're self-reliant. Um, you know, the only sort of government funding comes indirectly through, you know, grant bodies and the likes, um, through competitive grants. Um, and so, this, you know, it, it, it's not a, it's not a, a, a taxpayer-saving issue. There's not money that, that they can save by not allowing us to continue. There's no opportunity lost by us uh, occupying this space while there's no alternative use. Uh, and, and so it's, 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 it, we've been scratching our head for a couple of years now, you know, as to why, I guess, you know, that there is this seeming, you know, desire to, to remove community TV from the media landscape. Um, and I think it's really just been the overwhelming support from the public and, 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 and all sides of politics and, and, and organisations, particularly in Victoria, that every time we get to this point, uh, everyone kicks up a stink and, and, and the Minister of the time feels the pressure enough to, to, to kick the can down the road a little further. We would be hopeful of, of finding a future place where um, we're treated with a little bit more respect yeah, it's it's interesting as well because I mean media diversity is a, a big issue at the moment for good reason, um, and it's sort of the community sector that has historically been um, you know much more diverse in times of the um, the spaces and opportunities available to broader sections of the population that might not be able to gain Absolutely. entry to sort of the mainstream media kind of scene as well. And often when we hear community television invoked or the importance of community television invoked in sort of the the public conversation, it's around the celebrities that have come through there, but it's purposes, I mean, as we know, as a community radio station, is much broader than just who goes on to to fame. It's it's the actual ecosystem of that station itself that's important. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm often, you know, in interviews, you know, I, I'm asked to talk about the people who have, who have, I guess, used as a platform to, to spring into mainstream success. And I always try to, to sort of say to that, well, look, yes, they do exist. And that is a, a part of what we do. But you know, there is, there are countless numbers of people, particularly people who are who are looking to get into the the screen and media industry, who have come through community TV behind the camera. Uh, we have about we estimate roughly a thousand volunteers going to making any given week of community TV in Victoria, uh, and then you're talking on you know a, a part of that you're talking roughly about fifty to a hundred who are making some form of wage. Um, and so, you know, through this period, particularly when you're looking at 
local media and 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 uh, local arts and 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 Australian content quotas, uh, job you know problems with you know people being laid off left right and it, it, it seemed so strange that that during this time in particular we um, were were uh, being asked to justify our existence uh, when we probably ticked all the boxes that you would think. Um, anyone would want to have ticked at this point in time. So it's, um, it, yeah, look, we, we've had a, a pretty interesting uh, last few months and, and the last, you know, couple of weeks in particular were a, a bit of a roller coaster ride, that's for sure. Yeah, I've just got a, a quite a practical question, I guess. I mean, how are you still pumping out content when you thought literally a week ago that you were about to, to be, you know, essentially shutting up shop? Yeah, look, our producers are, are pretty battle-tested. I mean, we've, we've been doing this for six years. This was our sixth sixth last minute extension um and so many of our producers were signing off last week saying this might be our last show and were pretty much ready to go in <laughs> you know in the event that we got an extension and yeah. so we yes admittedly this week particularly there's a lot of repeats because you know tv programs take some time to get um produced but the programs that are live or, or at least shot live to tape you know that they were they were back in the studio pretty much the next day uh, after we got the news, and you know they were back on on the air with brand new content uh, this week. So it's it's I think it's just because we've been through this before that no one right until the the, the switch is pulled, no one um, uh, gives up essentially, and and so uh, we've been okay. We've been able to sort of carry on as if nothing really happened. Um, strangely yeah amazing well all credit to you for, for doing that um i remember years ago when this was first sort of being mooted malcolm turnbull was talking a lot about the online space and how if community television was to survive it had to sort of make that transition how was that sort of how does that sit with you and what are the types of um challenges you've encountered in in actually doing what you do with the full sort of benefit it provides in terms of participation and and quality and so on um existing yeah. only online Look, it, it, it's a it's a challenge, and it's one we've been grappling with for for a long time now. I mean, we've had um, streaming apps, you know, that, that were available in the Apple Store that you could Chromecast to your TV. We we had we launched that back in 2016, um, and it, you know, it, it it cost us far and away um, more money than we were able to, I guess, leverage off it. Um, you know, it, it was a big black hole in our finances to do that, and the audiences weren't there. Um, you know, there's also the question about what is a community media organisation if it isn't broadcasting terrestrially, um, and, and how do we remain relevant if we are not on television? Uh, these are all these are all questions that we ask ourselves every day. We we, we do have. Uh, and there, there has been a plan for some time now uh, about what we would do if we, if we were just not able to, to, to continue to broadcast, and, and how we would continue on the 25-year the, the history or legacy of the station um, into whatever it would look like, you know, um, beyond switch off. All of those things that we had as our plan of attack, um, basically because of you know what we're going through currently, they all dried up overnight so we were you know facing this particular switch off um without anything any plan b really really to rely on and so you know it was going to probably mean that we would we would have closed now if we can somehow navigate out of uh this pandemic and hopefully that's soon uh and and we are asked to switch off at a future date you know we do have things that we are 
we are doing that still embody um, the spirit of the station that still feel like as if we are you know a genuine community media organization uh, we are just doing things um, in an online space only now yeah I don't know you know whether or not um, that is what you would sort of picture it to be like a you know a community media Netflix or YouTube mm. I don't think it's, it exactly looks like that it's probably more of a combination of you know training and pathways and and, and uh, providing uh, access and uh, assistance to community groups to to I guess get themselves out there um, on the internet uh, using the, the medium of, 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 uh, of uh, screen production essentially so you know that's the future plan and, and um, it's not going to be an easy one but but it may well be one we have to uh, wrap our heads around soon. Yeah, well, you've got a, a huge job. I mean, you're not only just sort of managing the station itself, but running a campaign to try and have your license extended, which which happens at yeah. the 11th hour, and then formulating a plan for these really sort of tricky transitions as well. So yeah. um, you've done an amazing job so far, Channel 31, at um, at sticking around. I know other stations haven't been um, haven't been able to keep doing their thing around the country as well. So big congrats on what you've achieved so far, and best of luck um, going forward with it all. And um, we can touch base again to, to chat all things Channel 31 when the time arises. Cheers. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Shane. Cheers. Shane Dunlop there, the uh, general manager of Channel 31, talking about their last-minute reprieve that they got on literally on Q&A last Monday to continue broadcasting on the free-to-wear spectrum for another year. That follows a whole range of, of battles and last-minute licence extensions that they've um, experienced in the years gone by. And, um, I mean, as a community uh, broadcaster here at Triple R, of course, we definitely have sympathy with the challenges that um, our cousins over at Channel 31 experience. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.